Welcome to the GB News Real Me podcast. I'm Gloria DiPiero. Now, we all have views on politics and politicians, but aside from the spin and the knockabout, who are they? What makes them tick? What's their life story? And why have they chosen a life in politics? That's what the Real Me podcast is all about. We hope you enjoy a very different type of political interview. In this episode, I spoke with Michael Fabricant, the Conservative MP for Litchfield. He's been an MP since 1992. You might know him best for his incredible head of hair. Michael's a former medical student and broadcaster, but I thought it might be best to start at the very beginning by asking Michael about his mum and dad. Well, my mum was a housewife, but my dad, well, he started off as an academic and had done foreign languages, and then he served in army intelligence in the Second World War. But then, because of what he saw, strangely in my view, he became a rabbi because he was Jewish. My mother was of Welsh Jewish origin. And um, he sort of felt that, I mean, actually, if I'd have seen what he'd seen, because he had to interrogate, if you like, German prisoners of war, I think I would have become a complete atheist. But anyway, it made him more religious. And so I was brought up in a Jewish family. Do you have faith? I have faith in a lot of things, but um, I'm not a deeply religious person, though I'm very interested in religion. I live very close to Litchfield Cathedral, and I like the uh, music, I like the tradition. I don't believe in the Trinity, but you know, the great thing about Anglicanism is you can believe in as much or as little as you like. I like spirituality, I suppose. I don't know, actually. I mean, basically, I'm an agnostic. I've got a clue whether there's a God or not. But what I do believe is if you're decent to other human beings, if there is a God, that's how he'll judge you, not whether how you worship him. You were elected in 1992, but tell me about your working life ahead of your election. Well, while I was at university, I was in broadcasting and I worked on Radio 4 doing various programmes. Uh, and I did a teeny bit of television, but I think I must have a face for radio because I did more successfully there. And then I got thrown out of the BBC because I decided to get a consortium together. This was all while I was at university uh, to apply for a commercial radio station, which we got to serve Sussex, Southern Sound. And we got this license from the old independent broadcasting authority, as it was known as then. And we couldn't find any decent equipment to go into our radio station. So I went into partnership with a guy I'd met at the BBC, who was an engineer, and we set up a company to make broadcasting equipment and install it at radio stations. And we did that in 48 different countries around the world, and I travelled to most of them. So it was a very, very exciting period for me. What was the most memorable country you worked in? Well, that's hard because, I, you know, I was in countries, Australia, the United States, also in Africa. But I think the most exciting one, because of the time that I was there, was the Soviet Union. Because I was there a lot during the transition between it becoming the Soviet Union and then, and then becoming Russia. And I remember once I was with uh, a guy called Boris Viktorovich Nekrasov, who was head of radio studio planning at Radio Moscow. And it was May Day, 
and we were watching the parade as it was beginning to go or heading into Red Square. And a policeman, a militiaman, came up to us and said, uh, you can't stay on the sidewalk on the pavement. Uh, and Boris said, what do you mean we can't stay on the sidewalk? He says, well, that's, that's my orders, he said. So Boris says, well, can we join them? So we joined them. And I joined. What it was was a protest group which was behind the military parade. And they were flying the Lithuanian, Latvian, and Estonian flags when it was illegal because they were then Soviet Socialist Republics. And uh, I got chatting to one guy who was, I always remember was a ginger-haired, blue-eyed guy who said, I said, why are you protesting? And he said, well, he said, I'm Jewish, which I didn't look Jewish to me, but he said, I'm Jewish. And he said, in my internal passport in the Soviet Union, it doesn't say I'm Lithuanian or Russian, it says Ivry, which is Jewish in Russian, as if it's a nationality when in fact it's a religion. And of course, there's a great difference between nationality and religion, whatever the religion might be. Anyway, we marched into Red Square. And I remember uh, Mikhail Gorbachev being on the top of the Lenin mausoleum with other members of the Politburo. And suddenly everyone started shouting, Da Loi, KKB, Da Loi, down with the KGB. And uh, Boris was saying, this is looking ugly. And we're standing there in Red Square with all this happening. And Gorbachev was saying, calm down. And everyone was ignoring him. And Boris was saying, this is incredible. I mean, this would not never normally happen. And then we noticed KGB guys pulling cables out of the scanner truck. Now, the scanner is the truck which does all the camera mixing, because all of this was being beamed out throughout the whole Soviet Union, and they were pulling the cables out to try and take it off air. And Tiananmen Square had only happened a short time earlier, and Boris said to me, something terrible might happen now, so just get prepared to drop to the floor. But nothing happened. I remember Gorbachev shrugged, and they walked off the podium, and Boris, turned to me and said, Michael, I think that's the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. So I witnessed that little bit of history. Have you always been a conservative? Voted conservative? Uh, probably, um, but I must say that if I'd not been an MP, because as you say, I got elected in 92, I might have voted for Tony Blair. I was quite shocked actually, because I lived in Brighton which is a very cosmopolitan place. And I got into the House of Commons in 92, and I found the Conservative Party was very different from the Conservative Party that I knew down in Brighton. Uh, all retired colonel types, very, very pompous, and quite sort of misogynist, homophobic, xenophobic, and every other phobic you can think of. So I thought at the time that Tony Blair was quite refreshing. But by then I was a Conservative MP, so I thought I better vote for myself, otherwise I might lose. So I voted for myself in 97. Now, when I was um, doing my research, I noticed that you're often described as a close friend of West Midlands Mayor Andy Street. What does that mean? What's the nature of your relationship? Well... Andy and I met 31 years ago. Uh, 
I had gone back to a Gordy at Oxford University, and I to met him there. A reunion oh. at Oxford. And uh, he was there. He's 13 years younger than me, so he was at Oxford. And um, we sort of met up and became great friends. And, uh, you know, we've got a place together in Wales because we both like walking. We go on holidays together and we're, you know, we're very, very close. But we lead separate lives. If we live together all the time, I think we'd murder each other. So, you know, people sometimes think we're joined at the hip. We're not. But we're, you know, we're very, very close friends. And we know that we can depend on each other. And it's very strange, actually, when I think about it. When I met him, I lived in Brighton and was in broadcasting. And he lived in London and was born in Birmingham, or was brought up in Birmingham anyway, and worked in retail, subsequently to become the chief executive of John Lewis and Waitrose. And now I'm the MP in Lichfield in the West Midlands, and he's now a political guy, the West Midlands mayor. It's extraordinary, actually, how our lives have sort of come together. Is he a partner? We're life partners. <laughs> um, We're something special, but I'm not quite sure what it is. One of those indefinable little things. What would he say if I asked him if you were his partner? He would cringe with embarrassment. He would take the microphone off and storm off the set. A bit like John Knott, if you remember, when uh, he was being interviewed about the Falklands War. Now, you did First Dates for Charity. That's a reality TV programme mm. uh, for charity. So you weren't looking for love on that? I wasn't looking for love, no. It was... <laughs> they, they wanted me to go with a guy. They wanted to pair me... Well, I think they'd assumed I was gay, because um, people do assume that. I'm not gay, actually. I mean, when I was at... Uh, I'm bisexual, I suppose, if you've got to define these things, because when I was at university and after university, I was with women. And sexually, I'm far more, or was far more active with women than I ever have been with, with blokes, if I'm honest. But we probably won't go into detail because I believe this is going to be broadcast at a family time of day. Um, I think the world has moved on and everyone <laughs> recognised that love is love. Right. Well, anyway, it's cut a long story short. All the women I was with, they wanted to get married. They wanted babies. They wanted mortgages. They wanted commitment. You and should I was... have met me, Michael. It would have been fine. <laughs> we probably would have been, actually. <laughs> but, you know, I was sort of setting up a radio company, as, as I said, travelling all around the world and all the rest of it. I didn't want commitment. And, uh, you know, and then I met an American guy and then subsequently I met Andy. And, you know, we both lead, as I said just now, busy lives. We're there for each other. But it does mean I can get on with being nowadays an MP and he can get on with being West Midlands mayor. and We're not constantly worrying about each other and all the rest of it. Will you spend Christmas Day together? We will, actually. We're going to spend <laughs> Christmas Day with his dad and with his sister, Catherine, who's coming over from Newfoundland. So where we go every year, well, we did go every year before COVID. So it's going to be fun. And we're going to do it at our place in Wales. But often we don't do that. It just happens to be this year we're doing it. It's a good question. <laughs> it came to me. Um, so at the time of recording, 
Um, there's lots of questions. Well, I mean, the government has announced its drugs policy, but at the same time, there's questions about drugs in Parliament. I have to say, I, I never heard, were, were witness to it. Well, or let any me of tell that. you something. The only time I've ever heard about it was recently. So I, because of my former background, have many friends in the theatre and you know, the entertainment industry, as they say. Stephen Fry, uh, some years ago, came, came to dinner with me. And I subsequently read in the book that he'd written that he was so bored with our conversation at one point <laughs> that he meandered off to the gents' lords, to the lords' loo, to snort a line of coke. Because this you were was, boring him, Michael. Because I think I was boring you him were at this you were stage. Thought, <laughs> turning people to cloud drug use. It was back in the 1990s. I think nowadays he doesn't. Uh, but honestly, I mean, I didn't witness that. And, uh, you know, I smoked the odd spliff when I was at university and also when I was in New York doing the radio stuff in my 30s. But frankly, a gin and tonic has the same effect. I've never gone in for chemicals. I've got a interest in medicine and uh, the idea of sort of using chemicals which aren't properly uh, purified, you just wonder what on earth you'd be snorting. So cocaine is not my particular thing. Though I do remember actually, when I first became an MP, the whips thought I was so lively, apparently they thought I was on drugs because they were so pompous, as I said earlier, and so dour and so retired colonel, you know, I had this long hair and everything and they, couldn't believe that I could be naturally like this. And can I just assure, I'm going to look at a camera, I'm going to assure GB News viewers at the moment, I'm not on drugs, believe me. Sorry about that, Pierre. They'll probably edit that bit out. How difficult is it, finally, to be a character in Westminster on the green benches? You're not buttoned up, you, you're a character. Well, as I think some people might say, I find it only too easy. No, I don't feel inhibited. I think when I first got into the House of Commons, I felt very inhibited. I tried to hold myself back all the time. But, you know, when I, I sort of won Litchfield with a notional majority, because they changed the boundaries, with about 4,000. And in 1997, when I did decide to vote for myself and not for Tony Blair, um, I won with a, with a majority of only 238, which I didn't think was that good. But others said to me, Michael, there were MPs with 16,000, 18,000 majorities losing. True. And, I, and people began to say, Michael, you've got great personality, be yourself. And I found it much easier in the parliamentary party from 97 onwards. We were a small band of brothers on the opposition benches. But actually, it was great fun, and people, I think, respected the fact that I was electable. Illuminating, revealing, entertaining. Too revealing. <laughs> Perfectly revealing. <laughs> Michael Fabricant, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the GB News Real Me podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And you can join me every Monday to Thursday from midday live on GB News for The Briefing, your hour-long dose of political analysis.